Welcome to the Harmony Church Podcast. For more information on service times, any upcoming events, or joining a life group, please check out our website, harmonychurch.nz. We really hope this week's podcast blesses you. Tonight, I want to bring together these two themes, grace and glory and abundantly more. And uh, it's going to be a very inspirational type of message. It's going to be very Chad, okay? So, uh, yeah, some typical Chad, Chadisms in there. So uh, that's going to be great tonight. But this morning, I have a bit more of a serious word to bring. Ooh, all right. All right. No, no, no. Uh, this morning, I've got a uh, special word. I've got, uh, typically in these Grace and Glory conferences, uh, the morning sessions or the daytime sessions, a little more of the teaching element, okay? So unapologetically, this is going to be a teaching meeting today. How many of you have never heard me teach before or preach before? Never? Oh, so many old jokes I can do. Okay, great. <laughs> All right, so um, so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through uh, the scriptures as always. I'm going to be giving some historical context kind of as we go and unpacking what it is we're reading and then do my best to bring some of the relevancy of what we see in the ancient text to our current day. I'm here on the premise this morning that people who register for a conference and come out on a Saturday during a worldwide pandemic <laughs> are committed people who are hungry for truth, not just hungry for Holy Spirit, who is the spirit of truth, but hungry for truth. And so I'm preaching to a crowd. You're on my side today, okay? I'm assuming that. I'm assuming that most of you know me, a, a bit of a raised hands there, so most of you have a level of trust in me today. And I also understand that as Kiwis, you are about to enter into a uh, season, you have an election this year. And here in your, one of the things that elections tend to do is they bring out some of the uh, significant social discussions that are happening. Not only are you having an election, you're also having a referendum on a couple of big social issues, uh, recreational drug use and assisted dying. Uh, Like us in Australia, I'm sure here in New Zealand, you've also seen the rise of a lot of social activism uh, recently. Things like climate change, things like uh, transgender issues, there's a lot of kind of activism uh, around it. You might have seen a lot of activism in the area of um, abortion recently. I understand it's a bit of a hot topic issue. So this is, I understand that this is the season that you guys are in. And so as we unpack the scriptures today, yes, we're going to focus on the main thing. We're going to have our eyes fixed on Jesus, and we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. That's absolutely true. We're going to major on the majors and minor on the minors. But we are going to look at some of the minor issues. As we look at Jesus, we're going to look at some of the social environmental climate that Jesus faced in his culture. Jesus ministered into a corrupt culture. He ministered into a corrupt culture. In fact, when Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost... And he says, this is that that was spoken by the prophet Joel. He talks about Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. The forgiveness of sins is only found in his name. The people cry out, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You'll receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says this, with many other words, he warned them. And he says, now you have a responsibility to save yourself from this corrupt generation. Okay, Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin, but it's our role to save ourselves from the corruptness of the generation in which we live. And Peter says that to his audience, save yourself. Don't be like the corrupt culture around you. That is one of the calls of an apostolic people is to counter 
the corruption of the culture around us. And my role as a preacher is to create a climate, okay, that is conducive to consistently cultivating a countercultural community. It's clearly characterized by Christ-like character, the correct culture of the kingdom, and the courageous boldness of a people that would speak the truth in love, who are concerned with the call of the kingdom, okay? We have a kingdom, we have a jurisdiction that is beyond this planet and that operates counter to the cultural we are in. And so today, I want to look at something of what it means to stand in a corrupt culture. Catherine posted on Facebook yesterday a word that she had at the end of last year for 2020. In fact, there was four words she heard clearly Holy Spirit say. Those four words were eruption and disruption. New Zealand started your year with an eruption. We are now experiencing a disruption globally. Okay. The next two words was corruption and interruption. Corruption and interruption. And I'm going to suggest to you, I want to make you aware as we look at the scriptures today, that many of the qualities of corrupt culture have not changed over time. As we read the scriptures, yes, we're reading a different era. First century Jewish culture, first century Roman culture is different in many respects. But at the end of the day, the schemes of the enemy have never changed. And a corrupt culture then looks very similar to a corrupt culture today. And one of the things we need to do is not be ambivalent or unaware or ignorant of some of the qualities of corrupt culture. We need to be aware of them. We need to boldly speak the truth in love. And we need to be constructive in how we go about countering that culture. And so today, while it sounds like a negative subject, I want to talk about counter, countering corrupt culture, okay? But I want to look at the ABCs of how to do that. A, be aware. B, be bold. And C, be constructive. Be aware, be bold, be constructive, and we're going to look at Jesus today. Is that okay? Got an idea of where we're going? See? I just did that for you, Tom. It's a three-point sermon. That's all right. It also lets those of you with weak bladders know, oh, we're up to point three. That's all right. I can, I can hold on. I'm going to turn to John chapter seven. We're going to have a casual walk through a couple of chapters here in John. Uh, scriptures will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you. So let's go. Holy Spirit, we thank you. You are our teacher today. We thank you. You open not only our hearts to hear truth today, but we also commit our minds to you. We are here to sit at the feet of the teacher and learn today. So Lord, my head my heart and my hands are yours. Speak to me today, for your servant is listening. And to that we said, Amen. Let's go. John chapter 7. After this, Jesus travelled extensively throughout the province of Galilee. But he avoided the province of Judea because he knew the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were plotting to have him killed. Now the annual feast of tabernacles was approaching. We'll stop right there. These opening verses just give us a bit of an idea as to the time and place of what we're about to read. The Feast of Tabernacles was held in around September, October, uh, our September or October. It was one of the three major festivals that all good Jewish boys were expected to attend in the city of Jerusalem. And so this places the story, because Jesus died at Passover, it places the story about five or six months before Jesus died. All right. So what we're reading is right toward the end of his ministry. Don't just think because we're opening up to John seven that you know we're pretty early days no 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 John doesn't follow the same sequence that the other gospels do okay that's why we call Matthew Mark and Luke the synoptics they follow the same synopsis 
the same storyline. John does a whole other thing, okay? So John here in chapter 7, we're already up to six months before Jesus dies, the um, Festival of Tabernacles. And what we have here is two different places. Galilee, which is basically all the rural places up north. In the Old Testament, it's basically the far northern reaches of the Promised Land. The tribe of Naphtali was in charge of the northern area. We've got the Sea of Galilee there, Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, Nazareth, Cain, where he raised the uh, lady's son, okay, Caesarea, Philippi, who do people say that I am? All that stuff happened way up north. And Jerusalem is down south. The province there is called Judea, and it's down south, although in the Bible, it never says down south, like you and I think. It always says up, because Jerusalem is built on a massive hill, okay? So you never go down south to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. And the area that Jerusalem was in was Judea. Now, that's a new word for the New Testament, because it's a Latin word, a Roman word, uh, that basically this was the area of Judah in the Old Testament. Okay, so Judah became Judea in the New Testament. There you go. But Jesus is up here. He's up north and he's ministering in this area because he knows once he goes down there, there's people down there who are looking to kill him. Verse 3. So Jesus' brothers came to advise him saying, why don't you leave these countryside villages and go to Judea where the crowds are? so that your followers can see your miracles. No one can see what you're doing here in the backwoods of Galilee. How can you expect to be successful and famous if you do all these things in secret? Now is your time. Go to Jerusalem. Come out of hiding. Show the world who you are, big shot. His brothers were pushing him because they didn't actually believe that he was saviour. Okay, so they've got a bit of a... Uh, brothers and Joseph thing going on here. You think you're a big shot, Jesus? Why don't you go to the big smoke, mate? Go to the city and show people who you are. We've got an idea here that already, just before Jesus' death, we've got people who believe in him, people who hate him, and people like his own brothers who aren't even sure. And they say, go on, go to Jerusalem. We're coming. Why don't you come with us? Let's jump ahead to verse 9. It says, Jesus lingered there in Galilee until his brothers had left for the feast in Jerusalem. And then later, Jesus took a back road and went to Jerusalem in secret. During the feast, the Jewish leaders kept looking for him and asking around, where is he? Have you seen him? Where is he? Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Do you know where he is? The Jewish leaders here in Jerusalem, as we'll find out in a moment, they're mentioned twice now, are basically the Pharisees and the chief priests. Okay, That's basically, specifically, who the Jewish leaders are. And we preachers have done you a great disservice over the years by saying that Pharisees were basically the religious leaders of the time. It is true, but it's only partly true. The Pharisees and the chief priests were also the political leaders of the time. Okay, So Pharisees was basically the name of a political party. Okay, they were the red team, okay? And the, and the uh, what are they called? The Sadducees was another party. They were the blue team, okay? Whatever. And they basically formed, uh, or some of them formed the council that ran the Jewish people called the Sanhedrin. Now, there were 70 people in the Sanhedrin. This was their electoral body, basically. And uh, this Sanhedrin developed in the intertestamental period, okay? So after Malachi, between Malachi and Matthew, we've got 400 years of no scriptures. Some people call them the silent years, but they weren't silent. (laughs) Heaps of stuff went on in those 400 years. And one of the things that happened is when God's people, the Jewish people, were being oppressed by a political group called the Ptolemies, they had an uprising, 
uh, Independence Day, okay, where they raised their flag, a guy called Maccabees, Judas Maccabees, raised the flag of Judaism and said, we are going to take charge of our own people again like we did in the days of David. And they begin to have a hundred years of independence. And in those years, they formed a council to govern themselves, okay, and that became known as the Sanhedrin. So they chose 70 men to govern them. The Pharisees were one of those political parties in the Sanhedrin. Now, in this era, the Romans are now in charge, okay, but the Sanhedrin is still intact. What's your point, Chad? The point is these weren't just the religious leaders. These were the political class, okay? These were the social elites, and it was their job to set the moral tone, or at least they thought that was their job, okay? They told everybody else what to do, even though behind closed doors they weren't doing it at all, okay? These men were basically hypocrites. They hated Jesus, and Jesus loved calling out their hypocrisy, okay? But they were the social elites. They lived in the inner city, and they looked down upon the people from the rural areas, okay? And we're going to find out that later. But these were the moral superiors, the social elites of the time. Still with me? Where are we up to? Verse 12. And these people hate Jesus. Let's have a look at what's happening here in this climate in Jerusalem. A controversy was brewing among the people with so many different opinions about Jesus. Some were saying he's a good man, while others weren't convinced and insisted, saying, nah, he's just a demagogue. The New Living Translation puts it this way. He's a fraud who deceives the people. He's a fraud who deceives the people. I'm going to camp here on this verse for a moment because it helps sets the tone as to the social climate of the city of Jerusalem at the time. Make no mistake about it. Identity of Christ, the identity of Messiah, was the hot-button issue of the day. Everyone was talking about it. They weren't talking about abortion. They weren't talking about climate change. Okay, although they were in the Roman warming period, okay, they weren't talking about that. They weren't talking about um, legalizing dope, okay. The hot topic issue of the day in this area was who is the Messiah, okay. And the reason for that was quite clear. These guys were on a prophetic time clock, they had the book of Daniel. And they knew that Daniel had prophesied not just 70 years, but seven weeks of years, okay? 70 weeks of years. And 450 years had passed. 69 times 7, okay? Work it out. 450 years or so had passed since the Jerusalem had been rebuilt. And the only thing that people were talking about is Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming. This is the hot button issue of the day, all right? We've had Nebuchadnezzar's gold head. We've had the Persians lead. And now the Greeks came in. And now we're in the Iron Age of the Romans. These are the guys in charge. This is the time when Messiah would come and a new kingdom would come. So this is the era where the hot subject of the day is, who is Messiah? Who is Messiah? He's coming soon. This is why when John the baptizer comes, it says that thousands of people came to him because this was the issue of the day. Who is Messiah? Who is Messiah? Who is Messiah? The people were divided. And as you follow Jesus's ministry, we, we learn that he becomes quite a promising candidate for this role. Ooh, he could be the Messiah, okay? And Jesus, we know, spent most of his time ministering up here where the people in the big city didn't know about him. Perform, turns water into wine and only a handful of people know about it, okay? Not even the bride and groom knew who performed the miracle, only the servants. 
and the disciples. He's, he's working miracles. He's uh, having miraculous catches of fish. fish. He then starts healing people and people from all around the villages come to see him. And then one day, Jesus performs his seventh miracle. And he heals a leper. He heals a leper and it only gets three or four verses in the Gospels. It looks like an ordinary miracle, but it was a turning point in the Jesus story. He heals a leper and he says to the leper, now listen, you have a responsibility now to go up to Jerusalem and show yourself to the hierarchy. And so this leper, this healed leper, makes the 200-kilometer journey, five days walking, and he goes all the way to the city and he knocks on the temple door and he says, excuse me, Leviticus chapter 13 and 14 says that I need to come and present myself to you because I've been healed of leprosy. And the religious leaders all of a sudden freak out because this had never been done in Israel's history since the days of Moses. Moses healed Miriam. Okay, remember she had leprosy healed? They camped for seven days before they could move on again. Why was that? Because under the Levitical law, the whole of Leviticus 13 and 14 is, ded- or 14 is dedicated to this. If a leper gets healed, there is a seven-day ritual you have to go through. This is where you kill birds and you sprinkle blood and the whole thing about blood on the earlobes and blood on the toes and the thumb, remember that? And then oil and oil and oil. It's all in the context of a leper being healed. This leper rocks up. He knocks on the temple door. He says, guess what? For the first time in Jewish history since Moses, we have to implement Leviticus 14. These rabbis for for hundreds of years had studied Leviticus 14 and never had to put it into practice until this guy knocked on the door and suddenly... (gasps) What the heck is going on up there? This is why, as you now keep reading the Gospels, after the leper is healed, the very next story is the, um, the cripple who's laid down on a mat. And it says there that in the house, there were Pharisees and, uh, Pharisees and chief priests from Jerusalem watching. They had made the five-day journey walking from Jerusalem because they heard of a man who healed a leper. And we have to investigate this. Could this be the Messiah? And Jesus, knowing that they're in the room, the healed man, the, the lame man comes down and he knows that the Pharisees are there. And sneaky Jesus, provocateur, countercultural Jesus, says, Guess what, mate? I forgive your sins. And the Pharisees are like, What the heck? Only God can do that. Raises him up. He carries his mats and walk. And this is why from this point onwards, as you keep reading the story of the Gospels, Jesus keeps healing, the Pharisees are watching. Jesus keeps healing, the Pharisees are watching. Jesus keeps hearing, healing, the Pharisees interrogate, interrogate, interrogate. Jesus is finally on their radar. And then one day, Jesus has the audacity to cast a demon out of a man who could not speak. Now, Jesus had cast demons out of many people before. And the Pharisees and the rabbis, they used to cast demons out of people. But they developed a system to do this. They developed a methodology to cast demons out of people. And how you cast demons out of people is simple. You have to first ask the demon its name. And then when it speaks, then you know what you're doing. And you cast it out. Jesus cast the demon out of a man that could not speak.
How could he do that? He's going against our methods. Turns out the man was more important than the method. And Jesus, out of the box, casts a demon out of a mute man. Matthew chapter 9. And the people say, we've never seen anything like this in Israel. Yeah, you have. You've seen people demons cast out of people before. How do your rabbis cast them out? No, no, no. We've never seen a demon cast out of a mute man. Chapters later, he does it again. And the people say, this could be the son of David. This could be the son of David. And it's in that chapter that the Pharisees say, no, he's a witch. You know how he's doing this? He is casting out demons by Beelzebub. The Pharisees make up their mind. They're investigating Jesus. Remember, they've come down. They're investigating Jesus. Could this be Messiah? The crowds are suddenly saying he's the Messiah. And the Pharisees make their decision that day and say no. And incidentally, it is in that context that Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin. Because what happened was these people hardened their hearts despite all the evidence. They hardened their hearts just like Pharaoh did in Egypt. Okay, despite all the miracles, despite all the evidence, they harden their hearts. They put their fingers in their ears, their hands over their eyes, and they say, no, we've seen enough. We've made up our mind. That is it. Decision has been made. He is not the Messiah. He is a witch. He is doing this according to Beelzebub. They said the debate is over. We've made a decision. The higher-ups have decided. The debate is over. No more discussion. Chad, what's your point? You have to ask me that every now and again, right? What's your point, Chad? The point is, by the time Jesus comes to Jerusalem, it's in a climate, a culture, where everybody's talking about Jesus. Everybody has an opinion, but the higher-ups have decided no. Publicly, they've said no, and behind the scenes, they're plotting to kill him. What does this atmosphere look like here in Jerusalem? Because, my friends, as I said at the start, You guys, this year, are in a challenge, the battle for truth. And to know what is true and what do we do about it. What what is true and how do we respond to what is true. Let's read verse 12 again. It says, A controversy was bringing among people with so many different opinions about Jesus. Some were saying he's good. Others weren't convinced, saying he's just a demagogue. Yet no one was bold enough to speak out publicly on behalf of Jesus for fear of the Jewish leaders. Isn't that interesting? Everybody had an opinion on this particular issue, yet those on one particular side of the argument were afraid to speak up. Everyone had an opinion about this particular issue, but those on one side of the argument were afraid to speak up and say anything about it publicly. How many of you know sometimes we see that in our culture today? Have you seen that? One side of the argument, afraid to speak up. We had this in Australia in our election last year. And the population by and large were afraid to say that they wanted a Pentecostal Pentecostal Prime Minister. And so all the polls, even two weeks up to the election, had the other party going to win at seven to one. If you voted for Scott Morrison to be Prime Minister, if you were willing to bet on that, you get $7 back for every dollar. It was not going to happen. 
because none of the polls, the people who wanted to vote for him, just kept their mouths shut. And they became known as the silent Australians, who on the day when it really counted, they had an opinion, but they were experiencing a culture, a climate, where they were afraid to speak out loud. Similar thing happened a few years ago in UK, didn't it? No one saw Brexit coming. Similar thing happened in North America. No one saw Trump winning because those who wanted to vote that way found themselves in an environment where they were afraid to speak out loud until the day came. See, I said right at the start, there's three things I want to encourage you in today. ABCs. A, be aware of what a corrupt culture looks like. B, speak out boldly. And C, be constructive in how we go about things. And this is my first point. Be aware. Be aware. A corrupt culture seeks to frighten truth-tellers into silence. Be aware. Don't be afraid. Don't be alarmed when it happens. Just be aware. A corrupt culture seeks to frighten truth-tellers into silence, and it does this by the use of mockery, smear, and threats. By mockery, smear, and threats. We saw in that verse, people wanted to support Jesus, but they were afraid to speak. Nevertheless, Jesus speaks and he gets up in the temple and he talks and as he talks more and more, more and more people are listening and more and more people are won over to him and the Pharisees hear about it and they are threatened. And so what do they do? They send temple guards, go and shut Jesus down, deplatform him, take him away, take the microphone away from that guy, send, go over and arrest him, shut it down. And this is what we read in verse 45. It says, these temple guards who were meant to arrest Jesus, then returned to the Pharisees and the leading priests without Jesus. And they were questioned, hang on, where is he? We told you to arrest him. Why didn't you bring that man back with you? And they answered, you don't understand. <laughs> it's, it's in the Greek, hang on. <laughs> he speaks amazing things like no one else has ever spoken before. The religious leaders mocked you see, these temple guards weren't the elites. They were your working class, average, everyday people, you see. And they'd been told by the elites, this guy's evil. And then when they had an opportunity to hear him for themselves, they're like, hold on a sec. This doesn't add up with what we've been told. So they couldn't arrest him. They went back and said, it doesn't add up to us. Just, just go with it, right? Just go with it. It's fine. The religious leaders mocked. Oh, watch this. So now you've also been led astray by him. Do you not see that none of us, your leaders are following him? This ignorant rabble swarms around him because none of them know anything about the law. They are cursed. Not interested to hear arguments. Not interested to hear what Jesus was actually saying. What do they do? They smear an entire population. So you know what they are? They're just a basket of deplorables is what they are. They're just, they're just all cursed. They're all ignorant. They're all just a rabble. And you guys have been deceived by them. You guys have been sucked in because you're dumb, because you're deceived, because you are a, a rabble. I mean, the arrogance here is just palpable, isn't it? The arrogance of this is... The disdain in their voice is powerful. Verse 50. Just then, Nicodemus, who had secretly <coughs> spent some time with Jesus, 
spoke up because he was a respected voice. He was a respected voice among them. He was on the council. He cautioned them saying, now hang on guys, does not our Lord decide a man's guilt before we first hear him and actually allow him to defend himself? Isn't this what Moses told us, two or three witnesses? Listen, if we're going to decide whether this man's guilty or not, let's give him a right to speak. Let's weigh up. I think we might have made a decision a little bit prematurely here, said Nicodemus. And they argued, oh, so now you're an advocate for this Galilean. Search the scriptures, Nicodemus, and you'll see there's no mention of a prophet coming out of Galilee. So with that, their debate ended. <laughs> Discussion over. We, these Pharisees had like consensus, okay? Except for one. Consensus, debate is over, discussion is done. Don't you dare question us. And each went their own way. Really funny here in the arrogance of these social or political elites is that they dare say to Nicodemus, no prophet comes out of Galilee, which was totally false. Remember when Jesus was over here and he said, they said, you've got a demon. And he says, this is a wicked and adulterous generation. And they, I'll give them a sign. The only sign I'll give them is the sign of Jonah. Guess who was born in Galilee? Jonah. Did a prophet come from Galilee? Yeah, they were wrong. But unfortunately, in those days, these men were the ones who held the information. The common people couldn't find that out. Okay, so if you, you just believe what the higher-ups say, without looking into it yourself, that's the power that they had. Okay, so they just say, nah, no prophet comes out of Galilee, and they shut down discussion right then, and they do that by resorting to mockery. The Passion Translation misses this, but the literal thing here is, is they say to him, are you also a Galilean? And that was a smear, because to be a Galilean was to live up in the backwater up here. It's not like us city folk, all right? It's these country bumpkins that live right up north. You're a bit dumb, like those people up there in, in the Galilee area, Nicodemus. Are you dumb? Are you so stupid? Are you following this pathetic rabble? And they shut down this respected leader with a smear. This is an old debating tactic called ad hominem, where you don't attack the argument, you attack the person. In football, we say you don't play the ball, you're playing the man. Okay, you hit the man and not the ball. And I'm not sure whether you've seen this yet in your culture here in New Zealand, but a couple of years ago in Australia, we also had a referendum. We had a referendum on an issue about redefining marriage in our country, both legally, and then once you define it, redefine it legally, you redefine it socially. Okay, so two, two outworkings there. And it was an open debate. We were encouraged to talk about it. Or at least we thought we were. It was the hot button issue of the time. And during that time, uh, someone who just happens to be a pastor, but that's not my point, a lady by the name of Margaret Court, who is one of the greatest, not just female sports people, but sports people ever to have graced the world stage. Okay, her achievements, second to none in tennis. Absolutely amazing. She comes out very kindly, very calmly, explains why she believes the law should not be changed. We're encouraged to do that. It's the hot button issue of the day. And she dares, okay, to explain a point of view that runs counter to what the social elites were saying. 
And it was incredible to see how she was smeared, how she was name-called, how she was mocked and ridiculed. We saw it on TV, me and my kids watching. Saw people my age mocking her, mocking her looks, what she looked like, mocking her voice, mocking her and smearing her, and then calling for her name to be totally stripped down in society. Because that's actually the next step that these Pharisees did as well. Nothing is new under the sun. In verse chapter 9, what happens is that Jesus ends up healing a blind man. And I, I only skip ahead because we see the next step that the Pharisees were going. In verse 21... Um, the parents of this blind man come to the Pharisees and the Pharisees say, how did this guy get healed? Are you sure he was born blind? Okay. And so uh, the parents say here, they say, we have no idea. Because they were Irish too. We've got no idea, they answered. We don't know what happened to our son. They say, ask him, he's a mature adult, he can speak for himself. Verse 22, now the parents were obviously intimidated by the Jewish religious leaders because they had already announced to the people, if anyone publicly confessed Jesus as Messiah, they would be excommunicated. Now again, yes, there's a religious context to that. But there's also a very social context to that. When you were part of synagogue, okay, there's 130 synagogues in Jerusalem at the time. When you were part of synagogue, that was your trading area. That was your status in society. And it wasn't enough for the Jewish leaders to smear people, to name call them. The next step they took was, we're going to totally strip them of their place in society. (laughs) They can't trade. They can't do business. They can't, and basically these people go broke and end up in poverty, was the idea. And I don't want to be a doomsday prophet because I'm not saying anything prophetic here. I'm just teaching the Bible. But in Australia, we saw this too. At a similar time, there were certain businesses who the owner of those businesses dared say, actually, I'm going to vote no in this referendum. When everyone on TV says we need to vote yes, I'm going to vote no. And there was campaigns against their business, public campaigns, to say we shut them out of our community. Let's shut them out of society. Happened to bakeries. Happened to a brewery in South Australia, where I'm from, one of our best breweries, okay? Cooper's Brewery served me very well in my <coughs> university years. And, um, <laughs> and, and they, they thought during this time when we were voting on should we redefine what marriage is, they had two politicians do a series over light beer and they sat at a bar and they had light beers. And the whole thing was, let's have adult conversations and be light about it. That was their whole vibe, right? And so you've got two people from the same political party. One's a guy who's going to vote no, who doesn't think marriage should be redefined. The other guy just happened to be a homosexual guy who believed that marriage should be defined, redefined. And they're sitting there at the bar. They're drinking Cooper's light beer. They're having an amicable discussion about it as two mates. Political class, media class got a hold of this and they sought to shut down that whole business. Coopers came out, they apologised. I'm sorry, we, we dare not give voice to one side of the argument. They apologised, started rain, raising flags and uh, basically came out and were shamed and threatened, smeared, shamed and threatened into silence. What does a corrupt culture do? I just want you to be aware. I don't want you to be alarmed. I don't want you to be afraid. But I do want you to be aware that nothing much has changed. One of the signs of a corrupt culture is that it seeks to frighten truth-tellers into silence and it uses mockery, 
It uses smears and it uses threats and it was the same here in the first century. Now what should we do about it? B, we should be bold because we learn our lesson and take our lead from our Lord in this situation. I want to encourage you today to be aware, but I want to encourage you today to be bold, to take a stand and speak the truth with courage and conviction. Take a stand, Kiwis, and speak truth with courage and conviction because this is exactly what we see Jesus do. We're going to go back to verse 13. No one was bold enough to speak out publicly on Jesus' behalf for fear of the Jewish leaders, but Jesus spoke. And the feast was halfway over. Jesus finally appeared in the temple courts and he began to teach. He took his stand and taught. The Jewish leaders were astonished by what he taught and said, how did this man acquire such knowledge? He wasn't trained in our schools. He's not one of us. How dare he? He's not one of us. Who taught him? And Jesus responded, I don't teach my own ideas, but the truth revealed to me by the one who sent me. I speak the truth of my dad. If you want to test my teachings and discover where I receive them, then be passionate to do God's will and then you'll be able to discern if my teachings are from the heart of God or from my own opinions. After all, charlatans praise themselves and seek honour from men, but my Father sent me to speak truth on His behalf. There's a verse for your fridge. Why don't, why don't we have that as a magnet hey? or, or a bookmark or a bumper sticker? My Father sent me to speak truth on his behalf. At the end of the Gospel of John, chapter 17, he prays the Lord's Prayer and he says, as you have sent me, so I sent them. As You have apostled me, so I apostled them. How has Jesus apostled us? He has sent us not to speak our own truth, but to speak truth on our Father's behalf. And he says, I have no false motives because I seek only the glory of God. You see, Jesus was bold, but the basis for his boldness was the authority of heaven and the accuracy of heaven. I know what my dad says is right. And secondly, the reason, the basis of his boldness was he knew he was coming from a pure heart. I'm speaking the truth and it's in love. Speaking the truth in love doesn't necessarily mean we speak the truth in a gentle way. No, because we love, we speak the truth. Motivated by love, we speak truth. Okay, we speak truth in love. Jesus knew his heart was pure. I'm doing this for the glory of my dad. And what's best, and when, when my dad gets glorified, it's best for y'all. Everyone benefits when God's will and wisdom is followed. There's a difference between boldness and arrogance. There's a difference between boldness and arrogance. We can be accurate and be arrogant. Jesus was accurate, heaven's authority, and he had a heart that wanted to honour his dad. And so there was a humility there. And that was the basis for Jesus' boldness. What did Jesus say? Next verse. Jesus said to them, Moses has given you the law, but not one of you is faithful to keep it. So if you are all lawbreakers, why are you seeking to kill me? You say you obey the law, but you're not. Let's be honest. And behind closed doors, you're seeking to kill me. What was it that Jesus spoke? He called out their hypocrisy. And he called out their hidden agendas. He called out hypocrisy and he called out their hidden agendas. You see, hypocrisy, Jesus said about the Pharisees, these same people. He said, their hypocrisy is like a yeast. And you can't quite discern it necessarily. But boy, oh boy, is it there. 
You know, if I gave you a chocolate cake and I put big shards of glass on top, it's pretty darn obvious, okay? You're just going to take them off. There's a difference between wrong teaching and false teaching. <laughs> wrong teaching, I do wrong teaching. Every now and again, slip of the tongue, I say the wrong thing. But you're mature and discerning enough to know when you hear that, it's like a shard of glass on top of the cake, I just take it off. Eat the meat, spit out the bones, eat the chocolate cake, spit out the glass, okay? That's wrong teaching, okay? That was just wrong. You said Noah, you, you meant Moses, whatever, okay? It was just wrong. But false teaching is like glass that is put into the cake. And you don't, until you're eating it and you realise now, all of a sudden, it's doing damage. And Jesus said, this is what hypocrisy is. It's like yeast. It works its way through the dough. When you say one thing, but actually don't act like that, because truly you believe another, but you're saying one thing, but really you believe another. And this is how people become dull of hearing. When we don't take truth seriously, we develop a culture that draws people to be dull of hearing. And this has eternal consequences. Because when people get dull of hearing, truth doesn't matter. And they don't respond to truth the way they should. Because truth becomes far more subjective. And so when we develop a culture where a grown man can one day say, actually, I'm not male, I'm a female. <laughs> and what the society says, okay, now the prison system has to agree that I'm female. It's happening in the UK. Prison system agrees that I'm female. He goes into the female prison. Acknowledging reality or being hypocrites where we don't really respond to what is true, because after all, nothing is true. And so we have this beautiful medical system that supports a mum for months and months. And they do scans, and they say, can you see baby? Can you see baby? It's baby's leg. There's baby. Walks around, come, there's my baby. It's my baby. Look at that little baby. It's a boy. You can see? It's a boy. <laughs> it's a boy. Let's look after baby. Let's care for baby. And then a week before, she just decides it's not a baby. It's a fetus now. Now, are we ignoring objective truth? And we're asked to now go along with this. Now, what, why are these big issues? Why does this actually matter? You see, we know how to respond when something's actually wrong. We're seeing that right now. People know how to respond. When there's a real crisis on, when we truly believe something, people respond. Hello? What's happening now with coronavirus? People believe there's something wrong, they respond. Yet when someone else might get up and say, we are facing a crisis where there's going to be a mass extinction of humans within a few years and there are food shortages if we don't do anything. There's a mass extinction coming. And as a society, none of us believe it. None of us believe the 16-year-old, but we go, mm-hmm, good on you. We're, we're being hypocritical. We're agreeing. We're not being bold with truth. Now, what's the problem with this? When, that, when hypocrisy is accepted, we as the church stand up and we say, Jesus is the only way to the Father. No one can receive eternal life unless they believe in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. And now we have a community that's easy to go, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. 
truth is inconsequential. It doesn't matter what's true or what's not because we've got, become so used to hypocrisy. We've got so used to just acknowledging truth, whatever you decide it can be. There's actually nothing that's true. And that's why it can have eternal ramifications. Now, thank God, we also have Holy Spirit, okay, who is able to bring conviction to people and grip people's hearts. I'm not negating that, okay? But when we stand and say, you must believe in Jesus to be saved. You must believe in the work of Christ, okay, to receive eternal life. There is no other way. And we're in an environment, a culture that doesn't know what to do with truth, doesn't even believe truth exists. That's why hypocrisy is dangerous at these levels, okay? It's not play, play games, It's dangerous at these levels because we are removing all sense of what is true, what is not, and therefore how we should respond to what is true. So these things might seem little, but together they add up to a culture that is dull of hearing. Chad, what's your point? We are called to be countercultural. We're called to be countercultural. And we have a corrupt culture that attempts to intimidate, shut down, dominate, silence, censor, accuse, abuse, and pontificate. Jesus demonstrates what it's like to be aware of what's going on, both in front of the scenes and behind the scenes. I'm aware of what's going on, men of Issachar. I'm aware of the times and I know what to do about it. And the first step I do about it is I speak boldly and I'm willing to call out hypocrisy and I'm willing to call out hidden agendas when I see it. But thirdly, there's far more to changing culture than just our speech. We need to be people of action. And so the third thing Jesus does, the third thing, and I'll I'll finish with this to encourage you today, is to be constructive. To find constructive and creative ways to bring God's love, life, and light to as many people as possible. Find constructive and creative ways to bring God's love, life, and light to as many people as possible. Are you ready? Your bladder's still okay? Chapter 9, let's go. This is the blind story. Here we go. Chapter 9, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus walked down the street. He noticed a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Teacher, whose sin caused this guy's blindness? His own? In the womb? Or the sin of his parents? If I had more time, I'd love to talk about how one of the qualities of corrupt culture is instantly asserting blame. Rather than looking at a situation and going, ooh, we should do something about this, it goes, someone's to blame for this. Someone is to blame instantly. And I'd love to talk about that, but I don't have time to go into that today. (laughs) An ideology of blame. The sad thing here is that it's the disciples who ask this question, which shows that even followers of Jesus are susceptible to the thinking of a corrupt culture. These guys have followed Jesus for years and they see a blind man and their first thought is not, Jesus, here's something you can solve. Their first thought is, here's something that someone's to blame for. Even followers of Jesus can be susceptible to the culture around them. Jesus invites them to see things differently. Verse 3, Jesus answered, neither, guys, you're thinking wrong. It happened to him so that you could watch him experience God's miracle. When I'm with you, it's daytime and we must do the works of God. Come on, say, we We. must do the works of God. We can be constructive. The God who sent me while the light still shines. There's coming a dark night where no one will be able to work. But as long as I'm with you, my life is the light that pierces the world darkness. My friends, there is work to do. Yes, there are words to speak. 
But there's also work to do. Yes, we use our mouths because the biggest, one of the greatest weapons we have is right under our nose. I think that's the Joyce Meyer one. The biggest, yes, we have words to speak, but we also have work to do. There are things we should do. And Jesus comes along, not as a blame maker, but as a solution finder. Not, to, not, not saying blame. This whole group of people are to blame for that. No, as a solution finder. What can I practically do to help this? Verse six, Jesus spat on the ground and made some clay with his saliva. He anointed the blind man's eyes with the clay and he said to the blind man, now go and wash the clay from your eyes in the ritual pool of Siloam. So he went and washed his face. As he came back, he could see for the first time in his life. Be constructive, be creative. Jesus had healed blind people before, but this is the first time he'd used clay. It was a creative miracle that required a creative approach. And those of you who are prophetic types, look at the clay and go, well, that's a sign of creation. Okay, I'm the potter, you're the clay, that whole thing, okay? And it's a sign of Adam and God forming, and God was forming a new miracle here. He was doing something new. And I say yes to that. That's, that's cool, I get that. But I personally also see a very practical reason that Jesus used clay. I don't think it was the clay that healed him. The clay on his eyes prevented him from seeing. I believe the moment Jesus spoke and put his hands on that man, the miracle happened. He could see, but now there was clay on his eyes, so he couldn't see. And so Jesus sent him to the busiest part of the city because it wasn't enough that in a back street, a few people saw this miracle. Jesus stirred the pot. I want this work to affect as many people as possible. So during this feast, when the priests are coming up and out of the pool of Siloam, mate, you're healed. Shh, you don't know it yet because you've got clay in your eyes. Make your way to the pool. He goes to the pool. There's thousands of people there. And when he washes that clay off, he can see. And thousands of people all at once saw that miracle live saw his reaction live. The man could not see Jesus. He was protected in a way and it created a great stir. Jesus did something physical, something practical. Yes, something miraculous, absolutely. But he did something constructive and creative that got the most exposure possible to show that he is the light of the world. What's your point, Chad? My point is that we are called to find constructive and creative ways to bring God's light, God's life, and God's love to as many people as possible. Because it's one thing to be aware of what's happening in the world. And some of us are a little too aware. You're a little too aware of hidden agendas. Okay, tinfoil hat type types, right? A little bit too aware of what's going on. Some of you enjoy the speaking. You're all, we're all over Facebook. Blah, 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 blah. But you know, I wonder if today we need to trust God for creative ideas to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Because when there are hot button issues in society, there's going to be a whole lot of talking going on. There's going to be heat. And sometimes there's heat with no light. 
Is that how the saying goes? We need to be light shiners. And yes, we do that by speaking boldly. But we also do that by practical, constructive work with our hands. And I want to pray today for you, the Spirit of God from Isaiah 11, that will give you wisdom and understanding, creative ideas to know how to be part of the solution in our corrupt culture and not part of the problem. Does that make sense? So I want you to stand and let me just, I just want to release that Isaiah sevenfold spirit today. You've done very well. My hope today is that you, if you've been a little disturbed or a little confused about what's going on in the world, maybe today your awareness has been a little bit heightened. You're aware. Maybe today if you've been afraid to speak, my prayer today is that you'll be bold to speak truth from the authority of heaven and from a heart that is pure. And my prayer for you today is also that you have creative ideas. And I feel that God wants to release creative and constructive ideas about how we can be part of the solution in these heated times. You ready? Isaiah 11. Let me read this over you. The Spirit of the Lord rests on you. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Why don't we say that together? Say this. The Spirit of the Lord rests on me. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and of might. The Spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Holy Spirit, we thank You that You are upon us today. Sevenfold Spirit of grace. Thank you for abiding within us. Thank you for rising up within us. Thank you for coming down upon us. And we trust you today for a release of creativity, a release of wisdom, a release of confidence, a release of courage. We thank you for a release of clarity in these clouded times, in Jesus' Name. Let Your light shine, Lord Jesus. Shine in me, Lord Jesus. Let the light shine in Jesus' beautiful, beautiful Name. Why don't you just stay there? Just stay there, just receive. 